Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Monday. It's Monday again. I know that might be a little bit of a shock to your system. It was a little bit of a shock to my system this morning. Uh, Good morning to each and to all. It is the 40th anniversary of the explosion of Mount St. Helens. That may may spark some conversation in your particular circle or sphere of influence today. There is a cyclone named Amphan bearing down on India and Bangladesh. Uh, Let's be praying as they are going to try to evacuate more than a million people uh, in the midst of a pandemic in nations that don't have the kind of capacity that certainly we have. Uh, A few other headlines today that caught my attention. There's a small town in Alaska that now depends entirely upon one man, one man to make the 14-hour weekly boat trip to bring groceries uh, to their town. Think about that for a moment. Think about the dependence that we have upon people who deliver goods and uh, and some services. And then think about if you lived in a place where there was only one guy who did that and it required a 14-hour boat trip in order for him to bring you what you needed uh, in terms of your groceries. All right, so a little prayer of Thanksgiving today for uh, the access that we have to the necessities of life. Benjamin Netanyahu was sworn in for the fifth time as Israel's prime minister uh, and so when I keep an eye on that, uh, China, this is interesting. You may, you may, uh, you know, there's a lot going on in the world, so this may not get reported much, but China's ambassador to Israel was found dead in his official residence. Um, you know, that, there's, there's so much going on in the world related to COVID that there's stuff that happens that people don't necessarily take particular note of that may or may not be um, significant in terms of the storylines of the day. But um, in a day and age when we are considering and counting every death and noting it, uh, I thought I would lift this one up as um, certainly worthy of of note. There are more than 100 countries now pushing for an investigation, and China, for its part, is uh, instead of helping us understand how this started and how it progressed and therefore how we might learn uh, about the future of it in our own countries, they are now saying um, they're warning that there's no immunity against a second wave of the coronavirus. So that's going to be a storyline we're going to want to pay attention to as well. Here's one that caught my attention over the weekend. The Associated Press, actually, it's a story that's not a story, because if you Google it, you're not going to find it. So you have to be on Twitter (laughs) and following the Associated Press to know this. But here you go. The Associated Press has announced that it will no longer use the word mistress. No longer going to use the word mistress. Uh, So their style book uh, has an account on Twitter And the AP style book is sort of seen as the gold standard for journalists around the world. They have called the term mistress uh, archaic uh, and sexist. And so where they acknowledge that it refers to a woman in a, quote, long-term sexual relationship with and financially supported by a man who is married to someone else, they then say, um, we're no longer going to call that person a mistress. We are going to call them either a life companion or a lover. 
Now, my the reason I lift this up is because words matter. And as the meaning of words, I, I'll use the term evolves, but really it's devolves. As the, as the meaning of terms devolve and words that once meant one thing are now uh, grouped into or reduced to mean something less than they originally meant. There's a reason that we call sin, sin. There, there is a reason that we elevate um, the terms of husband and wife. There, there is a reason that we set marriage apart and the marriage bed as sanctified and, and holy. There's a reason for that. And it has nothing to do with whether or not we love each other uh, or whether or not we're life companions. It has everything to do with the eternal reality that there is a marriage between uh, Jesus, the Son of God, and the church. And if you want to read about that, there's a lot about, a lot about that in the book of Revelation. Um, but when we talk about the bride of Christ, and we talk about the bridegroom, and every time that Jesus refers to the bridegroom, he's talking about himself. And every time he talks about the bride, he's talking about the church. And so marriage is given among us, yes, for all kinds of wonderful reasons. But chief among them is it reflects an eternal reality. And so this idea that uh, a mistress is now just a lover or a life companion, think about, think about what we are saying culturally, globally. The Associated Press is a global organization. That's not just a style book that applies here. Think about taking the word mistress out of the lexicon of journalists and replacing it with terms like life companion or lover. And think about how that reduces the marriage between that man who is sinning boldly in such a way that, uh, that not only is he defiling his own marriage bed and his own marriage, but he's defiling marriage itself. All right, uh, testing is now widely available for COVID-19. Big question. Uh, it is so widely available. Have you been tested? I have not. I live in a state where testing is widely available all pretty much everywhere all the time. I haven't been tested. I see no re- reason right now to be tested. I don't have any symptoms. I haven't been exposed to anybody with it. Uh, but that is, you know, creating a, a bigger challenge or a big challenge, which is that apparently we need a lot of people, a lot of people tested so that we can actually see Uh, where we are. All right. So that conversation and lots of others related to COVID-19, the coronavirus up next with Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. He's our epidemiologist who we like to talk to every Monday. We'll be right back. Infectious disease pharmacist, professor, backpacker, hiker, amateur adventurer, coffee addict, dad joke master, board game enthusiast, and weekly guest. On Mornings with Carmen, Professor Zach Jenkins is back. Welcome back, sir. Well, it's good to be here. I don't know how to uh, go into that intro, but... (laughs) (laughs) Am I right about all of those things? You're right about all those things. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's excellent. All right, it's good to talk with you again. Um, Give us this week's... um, uh, Give us this week sort of over and under in terms of COVID-19. Where are we? We we rely on you as sort of our uh, put a pin in the calendar point in time conversation about this because we don't dwell on this every day on the program. Um, and so give us this week's update and what you cover in this week's video on YouTube. 
So I think a general update, um, we're starting to see all the states do a phased reopening, which we had talked about, I think, a number of weeks ago. But we're, we're starting to see this being rolled out throughout the country. And really, um, the encouraging thing about that is the total number of deaths and new infections seems to have rounded out. So we're not seeing a dramatic increase in total numbers that are being reported every day. Um, and, and I think that that's telling us that that our efforts have actually been helpful to, to some degree. Um, as far as some interesting things about the virus, though, as, as we've uh, been dealing with it more and more, we're starting to learn more about it. One thing that's been popping up in the news recently are concerns about a lot of vascular disorders, so issues with blood vessels, clotting, and specifically, more recently, with children, there's some concern that uh, they may actually manifest something that looks like Kawasaki disease, which is a type of inflammatory disease that are t that's really typically seen in children under the age of five. And so the video that I posted this week is actually going to be all about what we know of that disease. All right, so let's just start right there. Um... COVID and pediatric inflammatory syndrome. What do we need to know? So the, uh, this, this was reported a few weeks back, and uh, basically the CDC ended up giving it an official designation of uh, multisystem uh, inflammatory syndrome in, in children. So it's MISC for short. And basically what we know about it is that if children end up having it, they end up having a lot of swelling in the hands, the feet. They could have swelling of their tongue. Uh, it, it can look actually almost like a strawberry as far as color and then as far as like the, the texture of a strawberry. Um, they sometimes will also come in and they look like they're in, in shock. So their their organs may, may be shutting down. And that sounds really scary. But if but I think the thing to do is to kind of look at our numbers with with children overall. And in total so far, only about 2% of all the cases in the United States have been in those less than 18 years of age. And as far as numbers of deaths related to this particular inflammatory syndrome, it's actually really small. It's only about, I think, somewhere between three to eight is what I've heard reported. Um, so, so this is very rare. And, and normally when we think of, of COVID-19, we think of all the respiratory issues, the symptoms that you see there. So that's a type of syndrome that we see in adults with, with kids. This is another grouping of symptoms that we can see. So what we're trying to do right now is gather data about the number of cases like this that are out there. And we're trying to determine what risk factors people may have that predispose them um, to actually having that particular disease. All right. I'm talking with Professor uh, Zach Jenkins. You can follow him on Twitter at FarmD. Hiker, you can also find him at Cedarville University. He and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. I know that not uh, not all of you um, heard that greeting from Ravi Zacharias that just aired, but those of you who are listening online at MyFaithRadio.com, those of you who are listening um, via the app, uh, and those of you who will listen to the podcast uh, are going to recognize that we are um, ardently, actively praying for Ravi and for his wife, Margie. Ravi is at home. Um, we have been informed in recent days that um, he's going to be with the Father in heaven um, soon. Now, none of us know what soon means, um, but doctors are 
telling uh, the Zacharias family, and they are passing along to us through RZIM um, to expect Ravi to pass from this life to the next in the coming hours, uh, certainly days. And so we want to be continually lifting up their family in prayer and absolutely praising God with deepest gratitude for the life of this extraordinary saint. So just uh, be praying today for Ravi and Margie Zacharias um, in this time. All right, returning to my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Uh, Zach, let's talk a little bit about um, masks. There's lots of pushback against wearing masks. I will tell you that in the uh, between two different um, interstate exits separated by less than 10 miles for sure, uh, at one Publix grocery store, not only are all of the employees wearing masks, but all of the customers are wearing masks. You go two exits a little further out into the country, um, and uh, yes, all the employees are wearing masks, but none, I mean like none of the people in the store are wearing masks. Talk with me about what um, what you're noting and what we should be doing. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. I had a similar experience uh, last weekend. I went into one store um, in, in kind of more of an upscale area, and there was a, kind of like a smattering of masks. And then I went to more of a, a rural area, and there were a lot of people wearing masks. So I don't know what that says. Um, but what I will say about the mask pushback, I think what's happened is we, if we like look back in time, uh, originally the authorities were essentially suggesting that we shouldn't wear masks in the, in the United States simply because they, they were trying to preserve a lot of the masks that were available, the commercial masks for healthcare workers. That was the biggest driver. And then the other thing we know is that when you wear a mask, people tend to touch, touch their face and mess with it a lot. And I'm sure if you've been out in a store, you've probably seen people not wearing masks correctly. They have them down on their chin or <laughs> under their nose. So like that, because that's the they're that hot. We Right, because they're hot and uncomfortable. Believe me, I hate wearing them every day. But um, that that's been a big issue. So then we had some more guidance that came out where we basically said, okay, we'll put them on so you can protect other people. It's less about protecting yourself and more about protecting others. And there's there's actually been a study that shows when you start to layer those different levels of protection on top of one another, you can get the rates of a transmission down to, I think it's about 1.5%. So that's that's the uh, the idea behind it. But because of the mixed messages and some of the lack of trust people have and some of the information being put out there, and in some cases you've got uh, some governments basically putting restrictions in place. So like state governments are saying like, well, we'll actually charge you money if you don't wear a mask, you'll, you'll be fined. Uh, that actually gives people a lot of concern. They feel like their rights are being impinged. Okay, so... Um... Let's let's make the mask conversation personal and and where are gloves in all of this? Because so I'm wearing a mask regularly um, anywhere that, you know, anytime I get out of my car, um, other people are not. But gloves, that seems a bit of a mystery to me because I don't really know exactly when I should put them on, when I should take them off. Um, so can you help me a little bit on gloves? Sure. I'll give you I'll give you my take on it. Um, when it comes to gloves, I, I think they start to lose their benefit if you aren't changing them. So if you think about it, <laughs> right, um, I, right. I, I went into I went into a, a gas station <laughs> right regularly. So I went to a gas station and they had gas station workers with gloves. Well, that sa- the same attendant that I had was handling stuff for another individual wearing the same pair of gloves. After they had touched counters, I think their face, you name it. 
Okay, so that's, that's my grocery store. With- okay, that's my grocery store checkout experience, right? So the person bagging my groceries just bagged somebody else's groceries. And he's going to bag the next person's groceries. And he has gloves on, but he's not going to change them. But I've already touched all of that stuff. And so has the person who was running the groceries, you know, across the scanner, as did the person who put them on the shelf. Um, and probably, you know, someone at my house who's going to un- unload them and unpack them. So um, I guess our defense is wash our hands frequently. Use antibacterial stuff when, when uh, washing our hands is not an option. Because I just don't see all of us wearing gloves and changing them frequently enough for there to be any positive impact. You're very correct. And the other thing is we still have some shortages of gloves. That's still something we're running into. So the Hmm. the realistic uh, idea behind could you actually change gloves as frequently as you need to, uh, it's probably not there right now. So I, I think we really have to... Focus on the masks and hand hygiene is probably the best protective measures that you could take, not just for yourself, but for other people. Uh, uh, an individual from my, my small group at church had, had uh, described how you know he's been upset about a lot of these different things related to regulations. But his wife had told him, OK, well, you know, you have a responsibility towards other people. And, and it's not that you're worried about yourself and what might happen to you, but what might happen to the person who comes in contact with someone that's older. And maybe is at a higher risk. So that's something I think that we have to kind of keep in mind. Um, my, my take is, you know, when I go out and I'm in these public gatherings, I try to put my mask on. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about when you say public gatherings, what are we talking about um, as as I don't even want to use the term normal anymore as Things reopen as America reopens, as particular communities and states reopen, travel, people begin to travel again. Um, We're going to be with people who have been self-quarantined or, you know, whatever we're calling what we're doing Um, in other states, in other places. uh, Talk with us about sort of the re-engaging with other people from other places and maybe other things that we should be thinking about in the midst of reopening. Well, I'll give you an example here in Ohio. So we actually just reopened restaurant patios very recently. So people can go out and they can eat outdoors because there's less chance, they think, for the virus being around. Well, as soon as that happened, we actually had cases where a large number of people, more than what there was actually mandated that you were allowed to have in a location, were showing up together uh, to the point where it was kind of kind of crazy, as I understand it. Um, people are excited to get back out. It's almost like, you know, they've been like compressed for so long they had to spring out. Kind of like if you hold a spring down, you let it go, it's going to jump out. And I think that's how people kind of have felt for the past couple of months here. So I think what we have to be mindful of is even though we have the ability to go out and engage, we might need to be a little bit more measured in how we're doing it. So where we can be slow about it. Um, don't walk into some of these larger gatherings. It's going to take time, I think, before we're back to a closer level of where we were before. All right. Anything else um, that you think we need to cover today on COVID-19 before we let you go? I guess I guess the last thing uh, that I think is, is particularly interesting is there's some reports that out of California, there is a uh, company that's actually isolated a type of antibody that they think may be promising for therapy against COVID-19. Um, and what they think that this does, so this is what's called a neutralizing antibody. It ends up kind of binding, kind of gobbling up the virus and preventing it from potentially infecting a cell. 
So that's something that's really early. We don't know how effective that would be. It hasn't even entered in, into clinical trials yet. But I think that's encouraging that we have some more things popping up that might be potential treatments. All right. We're excited about that. We trust you to um, pay attention and obsess over all of this so we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you, as always, for what you're doing on the front lines. Um, thank you for the people you're going to care for this week and the way you're going to go about doing that. And thank you for joining us. You guys can uh, check out Zach's videos on YouTube. He also has a really great online Q&A that Cedarville University held on COVID-19. So check that out as well. Just go to YouTube. Um, and look for Cedarville and then type in Zach, Z-A-C-K, and it will pop up. Z-A-C-H, sorry. It's phonetic. Phonetic Monday. Hey, Zach, thank you so much. (laughs) All right, no problem. You have a great day. You too. We'll be right back. All right, what in the uh, world is going on in the world at the intersection of... I'm going to say religion and politics, although mostly just today, sort of worldview and politics. Adam Carrington is going to be with us. The most important news in his life, well, his baby has arrived. So there you go. We're going to we'll certainly celebrate that with him. We're also going to talk about the fact that the U.S. House has approved proxy voting. We're going to talk about uh, the Electoral College. You're going to hear a lot of discussion about that between now and the November election. And, um, and then also Michael Flynn. We haven't really talked at all about the Michael Flynn, I'm going to use the word saga here because it is a saga. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, we have the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference coming up this summer. Yes, 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 still happening, although virtually. So the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference is now going to be online with a mix of live and pre-recorded elements. Attendees now have the uh, will now have access to all of the breakout sessions, uh, not just the ones that you would have been able to attend had the event been, you know, live and in person. Karen Kingsbury and Dr. Alicia Britt uh, Sholey will uh, give keynote addresses that you won't want to miss. You can still have virtual one-on-one appointments with an editor, agent, or author, including me. Um, all kinds of great stuff. So check it out. And also, it's a whole lot cheaper than it would have been if we were all, you know, flying up there together. All right. Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com. Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com. When parents ask me how to better communicate with their teens, I usually start with this quit talking. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It might seem harsh like I'm trying to stunt the growth of a parent-child relationship. But actually, keeping your mouth shut can be a catalyst for development and greater maturity in your teen. You see, when you're constantly reminding, teaching, and correcting teens, it backfires on us. You're giving them the answer because you want to fill them with wisdom. But every answer you give is one they don't have to figure out themselves. It's a recipe for stunted growth. So. Try this out with your team today. Improve your communication. Resist the temptation to lecture. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. All right, Adam 
Carrington is not just a fictional character from Dynasty. He's a professor at Hillsdale College, and he's here with us as a new dad. Welcome back, sir. Oh, thank you uh, both I'm for working distinguishing on my me from well, well, <laughs> yes, thanks especially for distinguishing me from the other Adam Carrington. I've I've gotten that before, and uh, uh, yes, yes, we had a new addition to the family, uh, Mary Elizabeth, uh, and we're uh, very happy to have her, and uh, every once in a while getting some sleep with her. Well, there you go. You know, it's a new baby. Don't 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 sleep because the time is going to go so fast. And so don't bother sleeping. That seems like, you know, waste of all the fun you might have. Uh, well, she she uh, most nights so far has made sure that we have we have uh, not missed many moments. So uh, <laughs> uh, but no, she she she's a joy. And her her uh, sister, who, who uh, some might remember, I gave an interview uh, uh, outside the hospital yes. when she was born. Um, uh, is is taking the role of big sister very well, also. Okay, and she's how old? Because it doesn't seem like that was that long ago. Well, uh, longer than I than than maybe I thought. It, it was uh, three years ago. Uh, wow. So, uh, so right. yeah, they're they're almost exactly three years apart, and uh, that's so um, fun. Yeah, that is so, so fun. So, yeah, it's been congratulations. Been Thank you. All right, on to um. Less interesting things, but things we must discuss. Uh, the U.S. House has approved proxy voting. Um, tell us what proxy voting is and why we should care. Right. Uh, proxy voting is where um, someone can vote in, in in your stead. In other words, you're not there. You're not literally casting the vote. Someone else casts the vote for you, and, and that can either be done uh, by saying, well, um, you vote however you think I would vote, or it can be done based on here's what I know you're, is being voted on. Here's how I want you to vote for me. And it's coming up because obviously uh, response to the uh, coronavirus and uh, the idea being that one uh, House member can proxy vote for uh, 10 of his or her colleagues as a way of minimizing uh, uh, the amount of people in one chamber at one time or the amount of time it takes to vote, not making it take hours and hours for everyone to filter through. Okay, and, so can I uh, interrupt and yeah. ask a question? Yeah, sure. Is there a reason they can't do what my local city you know, planning commission is doing, which is to have their meeting uh, via a Zoom call or some other technology that provides for, quote unquote, in-person voting via some electronic medium? I don't see any issue. I, I would think at first maybe some uh, worries about could it be hacked into. But but one other thing they approved is to have committee hearings and meetings, committees, subsets of the House uh by electronically allowing for that to be done. So that could have been another option. And, and, and I think that one thing it brings up is, uh, yes, they're trying to be safe, but um, the question on the other end is, why, why does the House get together at all to do its job? Uh, if you go back to the founding, it's because um, they wanted a body that was deliberative, uh, able to deliberate, talk with each other, uh, debate each other. And, and by doing so, it's sort of, you know, the, the biblical principle of ironing, sharp, iron sharpening iron, uh, that you will make better laws when everyone is putting in input, everyone's putting in a critique. I think we already have a problem with um, not having Congress talk to itself enough 
talk with itself enough. Often mm. house members are just talking to a camera looking for a 30 second uh, soundbite for an election, you know, an election ad. And um, I think that's a problem already. And so I, while I think the House is certainly within its constitutional rights to do this, there's nothing in the Constitution that says it can't, I do wonder if it's going to further undermine their ability to talk to each other by not being in person as much and whether that will itself then affect the capacity for it to craft good legislation, which is its entire job. All right. When I go to the polls um, in November, I'm not actually casting a vote. I mean, I am for a presidential candidate, but I am really casting a vote for people who are going to vote in my stead. Right. They are these electors. Let's talk about the Electoral College and let's talk about the decision um, or the transcript of the Supreme Court oral argument from last week on whether or not electors can be bound to support the candidate whom to whom they're pledged. This seems right. important. Uh- yeah, very important and, and very important in the broader debate. There's a lot of people questioning the legitimacy of the Electoral College, period. Uh, since the uh, two two times this century, there, there's been someone elected with a majority of the Electoral College, but not a majority of the popular vote. And th- this in, 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 comes out of Colorado and Washington, where uh, the, the, the way it works is um, each candidate that's on the ballot gets a slate of electors equivalent to the number of electoral votes that state has. And those people are uh, uh, pledged to, if they go, to vote for that candidate that, that they were chosen, who, who they were chosen to represent. And um, uh, Washington and Colorado both uh, uh, voted for Hillary Clinton, but not all of those electors voted for Hillary Clinton. They voted for other people. And um, this brings up a, 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 an interesting question about the Electoral College, I guess, on two fronts. Um, one, uh, uh, what was the original meaning or purpose of having an Electoral College, not a popular vote? Uh, and, and what and, and how has it played out in history? And I think uh, 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 the, the, the principled reason was they wanted to actually have a, again, a deliberative body to uh, be chosen by the people, but then to make their own independent decision making. Um, And that would seem to say that faithless electors, as they're called, are actually constitutional. Uh, On the other hand, since very early on in American history, that really hasn't been what's happened. Typically, the people chosen have been picked to basically rubber stamp what the state decided itself. And so you have this long practice that says faithless electors are undermining what uh, the people who sent them there sent them to do. And this is where it gets interesting. If you're an originalist or a textualist, as many um, uh, as as a majority of the justices claim to be, uh, do you go with uh, uh, what uh, what the original, you know, the way Hamilton and these other other men are uh, defended the Electoral College as this body that makes independent decisions, or do you recognize that for a good 200 years, that really hasn't been how it's operated, and therefore it's really just a rubber stamp of what the the state itself decided. And and I think this plays into the bigger question of why have the Electoral College at all, given that it doesn't operate the way it originally meant to be, and what defenses do you give for it that are alternatives to that? I think that's a sub-question that, that's in the background of, of, this, of this court case. All right, Dr. Adam Carrington and I will continue this conversation in just a moment. Um, Two things that I still have, maybe three, on my agenda to talk with you about. Uh, Trump's financial records, 
Um, maybe we have time to talk down, talk about Wisconsin striking down the uh, stay-at-home extension, but I definitely want to touch on Michael Flynn as well. So all of that up next with Dr. Adam Carrington. We'll be right back. Give me faith alive, Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, let's talk about the President Trump's financial records case. Um, tell us what happened or what is happening uh, in sort of the up and down or over and under uh, in this story. Two entities trying to get uh, the pres- a lot of the president's financial information including uh, the the uh, uh, the ever uh, discussed tax returns that haven't been released. And one is the House of Representatives and the other is uh, the district attorney of the state of New York. And um, the president is uh, uh, fighting both and has fought both all the way up to the Supreme Court. And uh, they while they're basically the same records, they want them for different reasons. Um, The House says they want them because uh, they want to write laws about uh, what might be required or actually amend laws about what might be required of candidates running for president as far as what they're required to uh, um, uh, disclose or or, or what conflicts of interest they're supposed to give. Um, The uh, state of New York is saying. They want these informations as part of a grand jury investigation into potential criminal charges of mishandling of funds, of, of doing a variety of other things. And my over under is that I think this case, these cases might actually get split. And at, uh, in the oral argument uh, for the ha- the House, um, the 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 attorney for uh, the House of Representatives was unable to give any sort of limiting principle to what the House of Representatives could demand of the president, basically said um, he the basically the House can ask for anything and the court doesn't like it when there's literally no limit to what a government branch can do. And uh, it was bad enough that, by the way, the chief justice said, um, uh, I'm sure you'll be thrilled, Mr. Uh, Counsel, uh, meaning the attorney, that we have time for extra questioning. And I think that showed how badly that went for them. Whereas I think the state of New York was a lot better at saying, um, we're doing a criminal investigation. We only need things related to criminal investigations. Um, people have a right to know who's broken the law, no matter who it is. So I could very much see there being a split decision where the president doesn't have to turn over these records to the House and does to the um uh, to, to to the state of New York, and I think it's going to be interesting because this isn't just merely a question of partisan uh, fighting. Although there's certainly partisanship going on here, it's one is a question of the relationship between the House, uh, the the Congress, and the President, and how both protect their own power. The second is uh, what powers, even against a man as powerful as a president, should um, a a court and and attorneys have to try to find out where the law's been broken and where it has not. So those are the questions I would look for for the court to answer when they finally come out with the opinion probably sometime next month. It's it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating set of conversations. And I've been surprised. Maybe I shouldn't have maybe I shouldn't be, but I have been surprised at how at how quickly partisan the conversation gets uh, when you're just having this casual discussion with with neighbors and friends. It's uh, it is amazing how how partisan the lines are related to this. Let's jump to the Michael Flynn um, conversation, because I'll just admit to you, I have learned a lot about unmasking 
um, in the last 10 days or so. It is not what I thought it was, and it is not um, it is it's far more limited than uh, than I understood. So talk with us about the Michael Flynn case and where you think we are now. Yes. Uh, and so uh, what what came out was that, um, uh, you know, unmasking is if there is a uh, a, a person uh, who has not been named or not been uh, 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 not been their name is not included in, in a federal investigation. Um, the, the, that, uh, federal officials can ask to know who that person is, uh, uh, and, and have them therefore unmasked, uh, as the investigation is going on. And, uh, I mean, without getting into all the, the there is a lot of detail to it. Um, uh, I, 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 with, with Michael Flynn being unmasked by the Obama administration, by certain officials, I think there's a perfectly reasonable part to this and uh, a, a serious violation. I think uh, the pr- president officials in the Obama administration wanting to know whether uh, an incoming national security advisor uh, was potentially was being investigated for connections illegally with foreign governments is, is perfectly reasonable and not abnormal. Uh, there's been a, an average of about 12,000 of these kind of requests per year over the last three years. Um, what I think was really bad about the unmasking is uh, someone who got that information in inside uh, the executive branch or inside whatever part of the government got it, then leaked a lot of that information to the press. And why would the president or people connected to the president have needed this in the first place? To protect national security. Uh, what does leaking this do? I think it violates national security. So I, I think this unmasking has been made more of than it needs to be, whereas less has been made of the fact that someone get reasonably getting that information uh, then made it public in a way that I think is entirely illegitimate and 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 a uh, you know violates I think Flynn's civil rights and violates the very purpose that you're trying to unmask, which is to protect national security. Which uh, I believe was President Trump's point when this all occurred. I mean, the point that he made was, why are people in Washington leaking this kind of information? I mean, so I absolutely concur with you. Unmasking seems to be a a very standard practice, even on uh, behalf of principals by those who keep them informed about things. And so every time, let's say, you would see the former vice president's name attached to an unmasking request, it could have been the person doing his daily briefing who anticipated being asked in the briefing um, who said that or who are we talking about. Uh, and so the briefer actually requested the unmasking on behalf of the principal, whether or not the principal ever uh, was informed or not. So there's just so many layers to this. And most of us don't understand how the intelligence uh, operations of our country really work. And we shouldn't. Right. Because then, you know, frankly, it wouldn't. Well, it. It wouldn't be secretive enough. So there you go. It's a complicated mess. Um, We have to leave it right there. We might or might not talk about Wisconsin just because we like to talk about the Badgers from time to time. Not to badger them. We love you, Wisconsin, everyone listening out there. Um, Please, uh, please reopen safely. Right. I don't know how else to say that, Adam. We're just going to ask people to reopen safely. All right. Thanks, man, for joining us again today. Uh, Have a great time with Mary Elizabeth. Looking forward to it. Thank you all for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back.
Okay, so what are you doing today? And maybe more importantly, how are you going to go about doing it? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us be people who are rejoicing in it. Uh, You may be rejoicing at home. In all likelihood, you're rejoicing at home. You may be rejoicing at work. Let me just go ahead and say that if you are a delivery driver, if you are a farmer, if you are a truck driver, um, if you are a teacher figuring out how to wrap up the last week of school, we are all rejoicing over you. If you are a frontline healthcare worker, um, if you are a person who works at a funeral home, if you are a person uh, engaged in any way in the care of the elderly, we are rejoicing over you today. And so let us be a people who find cause and reason to rejoice, giving thanks to God in all circumstances, lifting up to him our prayers and concerns, being sure that we praise God for each and every person who right now is making it possible for us to do for us to do today what we do today. So what are you doing today? Who is making that possible? Uh, and let's be sure that we spend some time today rejoicing over them. And so, Paul Perot, I'm rejoicing over you this morning. Ah, shucks. Thank you. rejoicing over our engineers and others who keep us on the air. So let us be people who rejoice today over those who make our lives uh, possible in terms of what we're doing and the way we are uh, going about the things that we are going about. So there you go. That's my encouragement. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. we got another hour of rejoicing up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.